John chapter 17, we're going to be in verses 1 to 5. After Jesus had said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Let me pray as we come to this passage now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your word this morning, that you would be speaking to us. Would the words that I say be faithful to what you intend? Would your spirit open our eyes to hear what you want us to hear? And would we all be changed through your word this morning into the likeness of your son? Amen. Well, last Sunday, we were celebrating Easter, weren't we? We were sitting out here. It was a joy, and it is a joy again to be outside. Uh, we were singing. We were seeing each other's faces. I long for the day that we can do that permanently and not be forced to do it by a technical failure. But that day, it wasn't just joyful for that reason. See, as Christians, we, we believe that Easter is a joyous occasion, an occasion that should be celebrated, don't we? When you step back, when you step back and you think about it, it can be seen as a bit odd. Has that ever struck you? Perhaps you have family members who ask you, well, why is Good Friday good? Perhaps you've had friends question, are you really celebrating an execution? It could be said, from the outside looking in, that Christians have a weird obsession with death. Perhaps you're here this morning, perhaps you're watching the recording, if it works, and you're nodding your head. I mean, the evidence is pretty strong, isn't it? We regularly sing songs about the death of a man, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Well, we've been caught red-handed this morning, haven't we? We remind ourselves of Jesus' blood in the Lord's Supper. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Two for two, isn't it? And some of us, well, some of us wear jewellery in the shape of the cross. I mean, it's the shape of the execution tool used by the Romans to kill Jesus. Do Christians have a weird obsession with death? Well, on Friday, most likely uh, April the 3rd, 33 AD, on that date, that's a date that Christianity hinges on. It's a date that changed the world. On the first Good Friday at about 3 p.m., a man named Jesus died. And that event, it's been the key moment in the Christian message ever since. Is it just because Christians have an unhealthy obsession with death? Or more than that, is it that Christians have an, an unhealthy obsession with a gruesome death? No, it's far more than that. You see, this morning, 
we're going to go back to that date. And we're going to have another look at the cross. We're going to think over what really happened at that very first Easter and what it really means. If you're here and you're looking into Christianity this morning, my hope is that you're going to come away with a far better understanding of that pivotal moment. And if you are a Christian, well, hopefully the same will be said of you as well. See, my hope is that we will all leave seeing Easter as something bigger than a simple death. We're going to leave rejoicing at what was done on that date 2,000-ish years ago. And to help us do that, John has given us John chapter 17. See, throughout John's Gospel, there's a whole load of misunderstanding. Jesus does things, and people just don't get the full significance of them. Whether they think he's just a good party guest as he turns water into wine, or a portable vending machine as he provides food for 5,000 men. Or if you were with us a few weeks back, when we looked at John 13, where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Remember the disciples, they didn't get it. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Throughout John's Gospel, there has been a lot of misunderstanding. And the same could be said of Jesus' death. I mean, when it comes to it, John's pretty vacant on the details. Let me just read the one verse, John 19, verse 30, if you want to look it up. When Jesus had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You see, you could be left thinking that this was a pretty normal death of a pretty normal man. You could be left saying, well, wasn't that unimpressive? You could, as many have before, see a weak, a shameful looking death. But as with the rest of John's Gospel, we're given words that help us understand what is really going on here. And those words are found in John chapter 17. You see, in John chapter 17, we get to hear a prayer. A prayer that helps us to see what was going on at the cross. A prayer that we can take and we can see the cross through, like a, like a pair of glasses. A prayer that if we really understand, will help us to see what's really going on. If you were there, on that very first Good Friday, what is it you would have seen? If you had the stomach to look, what is it you would have been looking at as you gaze at the man, or what's left of the man, hanging naked on the Roman cross as he fights for his final breath? What is it that you would have been looking at? Well, the answer that John gives us here in John 17 you would have seen the hour of glory when God was made known. You would have seen the hour of glory when God was made known. We're going to unpack that statement over the next few minutes. So let's have a look in detail. First of all, the hour. I'm going to read John 17, 1 to 3 again. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Say, Father, the hour has come. When you hear those words, you know that something big must be around the corner, and you'd be right. Throughout John's Gospel, the hour has been approaching. 
right from John chapter 2, at the wedding in Cana, the clock has been ticking. As the party runs out of wine and Jesus' mother gives him a nudge, Jesus responds, my hour has not yet come. And now, in this prayer, the night before his execution, Jesus prays to his father and says that the hour has now come. Well, so what is that hour? Well, to use John's words, John chapter 13, if we were in the hall, I'd have it on the screen for you. You'd have to look up yourself. John chapter 13, this is the hour for Jesus to leave this world and to go to the Father. This is the hour that Jesus is going to return to the Father by means of his death on the cross. This moment is the hour, or if you have an older version of the Bible, the time that all of John's gospel has been looking forward to. Well, what is it you're currently looking forward to? Children, what are you currently looking forward to? What's the big event on your kitchen calendar that has a big circle around it, maybe some stickers, some arrows? Kids, it might be your next birthday. Maybe it's your next birthday, maybe that's coming up. Or if you've already had it, perhaps it's Christmas. Or perhaps it's when you put a bigger coat on. Maybe that's the adults. If you're an adult, it might be tomorrow. It might be April the 12th, when we can finally go out and have some food. We can go to the pub and, looking at some people here, get that well-needed haircut. See, when we're looking forward to something, nothing can be seen beyond it, can it? That date is what fills our horizons. It's what's at the front of our minds. Well, this is the hour in John's Gospel that has dominated the whole Gospel. It's been the driving force, the thing that John has been looking forward to. But not just John's Gospel. In fact, the whole of the Bible has been looking forward to this hour. We saw that with the kids earlier. You see, it could be easy to think of Jesus' death as something that just popped into people's heads just before it happened. But the Bible story has been looking forward to this moment, this very moment, this exact moment in history since the very beginning. Jesus can say that Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing Jesus' day. Jesus can tell the Jewish leaders that Moses wrote about him. You see, the entire Bible story has been waiting for this very hour. The very hour that Isaiah can say he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, on that very first Friday, Good Friday, around 3 p.m., that hour came. The momentous season finale, the history-making moment, it arrived. So what would you have seen if you'd been there? Well, yes, you would have seen a man dying. But you would have seen more. You'd have seen the very hour that God had planned from the dawn of time. You'd have seen the climax of God's plan. You'd have seen God's promised work come true. You would have seen the hour. Well, second of all, you'd have seen the glory. Now, children, here's a challenge for you. Adults, too, if you like, find your Bibles. Just see, in those first five verses of John 17, how many times you can see glory words. Glorify, glory, that kind of thing. I'll give you a moment. John chapter 17, those first five verses. How many glory words can you find? 
How many have we got? What have we got, Fair? Fair's got five. Buckley's have five. Look at my children, they're not going to be able to count to five. Far too little. Well, actually, no, you can count to five, can't you, Jojo? No, fine. Ignore your dad. I've got five too. Let's go through them. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in the presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. You get it five times in five verses. And that's not all. This whole chapter has a load of those glory words. Just have a, a scan down. Nine times in this chapter, John 17, does Jesus mention glory. As we said, those words come up five times in these five verses. And Jesus prays for it twice in these five verses. Did you see that? Have a look at verse one. Jesus prays, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. He's praying about the cross. And in verse five, as he prays about his ascension, as he prays about going back to the Father. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus says five times glory in two prayers. You see, this is really important. But before we get too far, this is always the, the issue when you're preaching on something, you probably need to explain what that word means. So what is glory? Let's define it. Well, John helps us with that. Right back at the start of John's Gospel, the Buckley's going to sing in a minute, probably, when I say this. John tells us this, John 1.14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Oh, you better believe it. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, John is telling us that glory is something that is showable. Glory is something that can be seen. As Jesus performed signs in John's Gospel, he's said to be revealing his glory. He's showing something to other people. It's something that's praiseworthy, something that shows true greatness, something that shows fame. I mean, that's how we use it today in our world, isn't it? As the footballer shows their skill as they bend the ball around the back of the goalkeeper in the final minute, that moment is glorious. As the architect returns an old falling down building uh, to its original state, it's said to be restoring its former glory. See, glory is something that is showable, something that demonstrates what something is really like. Well, in the Bible story, God's glory has been a recurring theme. Creation is said to be a hint of God's glory. Moses, as he hides in the cleft of a rock, he sees the tail end of God's glory. The temple that Solomon builds, covered internally with pure gold, with chains overlaid with gold, when it's finished, the priests can't perform their service because the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The glory that made Isaiah, as he stood in God's presence, cry out, woe is me. See, the major headline of the Bible story of God's glory is that God's glory is big, it's bright, and it's blazing. That's the Bible's presentation of God's glory. It's big, it's bright, and it's blazing, and nothing Absolutely nothing stands in comparison. And yet, God promised that those moments would be like nothing. He promised that greater glory would be seen. 
If you've been joining us on a Sunday evening, things are about to pay off for you. You'll know that we started looking, uh, we started a series in Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5, God promises this. He says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed, notice the glory word there, and all people, put a tack in that, all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, God says there'll be a time when his glory will be revealed and all people will see it. Something that's going to be a greater display than the cosmos. Something that's going to be a greater, or more impressive than a gold-covered temple. The glory will be revealed and all people will see it. So where is that? When is that? When is God shown to be his most godlike? When is God seen at his most impressive, at his most glorious? Well, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he may give eternal life to all those you have given him. When is God most glorified? Was that the cross, do you see? Glory. All people. John is picking those words directly out of Isaiah chapter 40. John is saying that this is that. What Isaiah is talking about is this right here. As Jesus returns to the Father through the cross, that will glorify God. It's not that the cross is the thing that leads to glory. No, it's the cross itself where God is glorified. If you could bear it, what would you have seen if you'd been there that Friday afternoon? Yes, you would have seen a man dying a shameful criminal's death. A death reserved for the very worst of the outlaws. But you would have seen more. You would have seen the moment that God was at his most glorious. You would have seen all of God's glory revealed and on full display, at its most visible, at its most present, as God showed himself. So what have we seen so far? We've seen that the cross is the hour the whole Bible's been looking forward to. It's been the climax of God's plan. And we saw that Jesus prays that through that moment, through the cross, the Father would glorify the Son so that the Son would glorify the Father. That's all well and good, but why is that? Why does Jesus want that to happen? Well, that's our third and final thing to see this morning. Why does Jesus want this to happen? Because that is how God is made known. Now, something, once something is made known, it changes people's perceptions of it, doesn't it? At university, I took a module called Human-Computer Interaction. I mean, it's really trendy sounding, isn't it? But this was a module. It was all about how humans interact with things. It's really fascinating, actually. See, designers, they build things into their products to make human interaction with them easier. But part of the problem they have is making that thing known. For example, the hole in the pull tab of a can of Coke, did you know, is designed to hold a straw. Spin it round, stick your straw in. Or an OXO cube. You know, an OXO cube wrapper, you know that silver thing around the outside that you have to peel off to get the stuff inside? Well, actually, it's made to unfold so that you can just push it, the whole thing turns to powder inside, and then you rip the corner, pour it in. Now you're waiting to try this at home, aren't you? You see, those things, once they're made known, 
They change the way a person lives, even if it's just making your gravy a bit easier to make. Now, get this right, far bigger than that is what Jesus is doing through the cross. We need to trace this argument. So have a look down at your Bible, 17, chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. These are confusing verses for some people who might knock on your door on a Saturday morning. John 17, verses 1 to 3. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, the hour and the glory that we've seen already, so that, verse 2, Jesus might give eternal life. And what is eternal life? Well, Jesus spells it out for us, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, Jesus is praying that the cross would be the thing that would bring the whole world to know the one true God. That's the point of this hour. That's why this is a moment of glory. This is the hour that God's glory is put on display for the, for the reason of bringing the whole world to know the one true God. That all people may have eternal life. It's important to get that logic, to get the logic of Jesus' prayer here. See, that's what's going on at the cross. As Jesus is lifted high, he draws all people to himself. He's like a banner, rallying people together. See, at the cross, there was a public display, there was a public spectacle. Not merely an example of what love is, though it does show us God's love. Not just an innocent man dying, an undeserved death, though he didn't deserve it. No, this is a public display that shows God to the world. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, Jesus is the one place where the one true God is known. Even more than that, the pivotal moment of making God known to the world was the cross. And when I say making God known, I'm not saying this is a fact. I'm not saying this is just something that we nod our heads at. I'm not saying this is something just to fill your heads with. This is eternal life. This is far bigger than a fact for another virtual pub quiz. This is relational knowledge. This is a way of life. This is something that changes everything. Like those cool designs earlier, but far bigger. It's a moment that makes you drop everything else and turn to the true and living God. It's a way back to life and to life eternal. And when you grasp that, it's striking, isn't it? The very thing that God chose to use as his signal to the world of who he was, was the cross. That's why we want to be talking about Jesus' blood at church. That's why we want to be singing songs about Jesus' death. There's a reason to remind ourselves in it in jewellery. You see, the thing is, it's so easy to shy away from it, isn't it? We can shy away from talking about the cross. We can skim over the cross when we share the gospel. We can diminish the cross when 
we're seeking to share uh, with our neighbours, how our neighbours can know God. We make the cross cartoonish in the way that we teach our children. We can stick an Instagram filter over it and just put a little pithy quote to cover up the true reality of it. You see, that's understandable. If the cross is just a weird obsession with death. But do you see what John is saying here in John 17? As he records Jesus' prayer for us to hear, the cross is the way that God himself has made himself known to all people. It is this hour, it's this glory. This is God's marketing campaign to a world in rejection of him, the cross. I mean, if any of you here are in marketing, that might not be what you would choose. But that is what God has chosen. Let's not forget that. So what would you have seen if you'd been there that Friday? On that Friday afternoon, yes, you would have seen one man dying between two others. It, wasn't, it was probably not the only execution that day, actually. But you would have seen far more. You would have seen God's grand plan of making himself known to the whole world. You would have seen the one place where the true God is known. I mean, if you'd been there on that very Friday afternoon, you probably wouldn't have thought very much about it. A man dying a slow and painful death, one of many that day, executed for being a criminal by Roman soldiers. You might have noticed the sky turn black Perhaps if you're really listening, you would have heard the sound of a curtain tearing. But that would have been about it. Another normal, unimpressive Friday. Bring on the weekend. See, on the face of it, the cross can look weak. It can look shameful. Not something you want to broadcast to the world. But with the eyes that John 17 gives us, we would have seen the hour that a whole of history was waiting for. We'd have seen the glory of God that caused Moses to fall down on his face, for Isaiah to cry out, woe is me, on display for all to see. We'd have seen the moment that God was made known to the world, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. See, as, John continue, as Jesus continues this prayer here in John 17, he's going to pray for his disciples. He's going to pray that they would go out into the world and continue to make God known as they share the news of what happened that Friday afternoon. And that's what the disciples did. They had the eyes to see what was really going on, to see more than just a death on a Friday afternoon. Instead, they saw the glorious hour that God was made known. And they went and they shared it. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and they found life in his name. And at the end of John 17, Jesus prays for us too, as those who hear that news from the disciples of the glorious hour that God has made known. I hope that we grasp a bit more of what happened on that Friday afternoon. Perhaps this is your first time of thinking through what happened. Hopefully John has moved us past thinking Easter is just a weird obsession with death. Perhaps you're sitting here, perhaps you're watching this, you still find the whole thing quite offensive, actually. Well, can I encourage you to have a look again? That's what John wants us to do with this chapter. He wants us to look again and see what was really going on. I'm happy to spend some time talking about it. We're happy to send you a John's Gospel. 
There's lots of other people here happy to talk about it too. Just let us know at the church. But personally, I find it really helpful to hear Jesus' prayer here in John 17. And just to remember how big Easter is. And sometimes we go through the motions each year, don't we, of what Easter is. It's this thing that comes up each year, and we've heard the story before. But when we look at John 17, we see it was far bigger than that. I hope you see that too. And if you do, it should lead us to rejoice. To rejoice that the cross was the hour of glory when God was made known. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we praise and thank you for the cross. We praise and thank you that the cross was the hour of glory when you were made known to the world. We pray that as we go and continue to think over this passage, that you would give us clarity, that you'd give us understanding. Would we be so struck by what happened on that very first Good Friday that we can't help but share it with those around us? We thank you for this passage and we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Amen.